Today's episode of the two-man power trip of wrestling is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast. Podgo is providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co. That is one more time, P-O-D-G-O dot C-O, podgo dot co. The upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Hey, Johnny. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? Podcast. Welcome to the two-man power trip of wrestling. I'm your host, JP John Paz. With me today is a very special guest, former WWE World Tag Team Champion, European Champion, Hardcore Champion, a Smoky Mountain Tag Team Champion. He's now running OVW. He is Mr. Al Snow. Al, welcome to the two-man power trip. How are you doing? Thank you very much, John. I appreciate it. So what's going on in your world? What have you been up to? Uh, well, you know, uh, being a part owner and um and uh, you know operating uh ovw um seems it keeps my hands full pretty much uh a lot that that thing's a monster so you know uh, i my hat's off to vince mcmahon uh, it's amazing what he does on a daily basis on a on that level uh, because i can barely keep up with everything on this level so i can only imagine what he's doing you know on that level it's got to be insane oh Absolutely nuts over licensing, merchandising, TV, and everything else. But what's going on with OVW? Like, what's the latest? Um, like, how's everything going with you guys in TV and moving forward? Uh, with TV, it's going great. Um, we just uh, signed a deal and um, got on the Action Channel, uh, which increases our reach nationally uh, across the country. And um, uh, we're trying to work on a couple of other outlets right now, national outlets to get the show on regionally. Um, we are now, we've always been for, for decades. We've been, you know, on uh, WBNA here in Louisville, Kentucky, and now we're in Lexington and, uh, Bowling Green and Hazard. Um, and, uh, they are, uh, a part of the great television network. So, if things go well, which they've been going very well there, um, the hope is is that we'll expand out into uh, Charleston, West Virginia, which is a gray uh, station that gets broadcasts all in all of West Virginia and eastern northeastern Kentucky, and then we can access Cincinnati, Dayton, Indianapolis, and Evansville, Indiana, and that'll give us a uh, about a two and a half hour range. Um, within from Louisville that we can operate live events once we establish the television show in those different areas. I think everyone thinks OVW, you know, they automatically think like the WWE developmental territory going back many years. What is like, what would you say right now? Like, how would you describe OVW? Obviously not a developmental territory at all. In a way, in a way it is to a degree. Um, What I've tried to build here is a combination of two things. Uh, um, one, an operational territory, regardless of whether it's developmental or otherwise, it's an operational territory. And um, um, 
a platform that allows for exposure and um, for talent to promote themselves and make themselves into stars and, and, and give them opportunities. Um, and it's a, it's a place, a, a developmental in the sense that we operate the, the only actual um, wrestling school that is uh, certified as a trade school by the State Office of Proprietary Education in the world. And um, um, so it's a great place for young talent to come and learn and be developed and, uh, and you know, get experience and therefore know uh, the tools that they need to take advantage of uh, opportunities that come their way. And then it's, uh, I'm steadily working on it becoming a, sorry about that. Oh, <laughs> sorry, no somebody called. Sorry. Um, I'm working very hard on making it a viable platform for uh, veteran wrestlers that have had a run in a, uh, another, you know, platform, another company to be able to come and reinvent themselves and uh, get exposure uh, on the platform and possibly, you know, use that to create another opportunity to work on a larger platform again. So and, and to be able to make a living uh strictly as a professional wrestler you know that's that's the goal is to be able to make this a financially uh profitable and successful model that uh talent can come and make a make a living now they're not going to get rich you know because it's not that size of a platform but they can make a living and doing being a wrestler and nothing else not having to have another type of job how did you get the uh, trade school thing? Like, how did that come about? Because that's interesting. Uh, took uh, many years. Took uh, about two years of work to make it happen. Um, and you know, um, you know, the the explanation um, was twofold. One, um, I think everybody views professional wrestling training as like it, it like you would be taking martial arts, like jujitsu or. You know, and to a degree it is, I mean, um, but the difference is, is that in martial arts, they're just teaching you self-defense and in professional wrestling training, I am teaching these young men and women skills to pursue a career, to make a living, to have a vocation. And that's, that's the big difference. You know, they have to know certain things to be able to take advantage of opportunities that come their way to be, you know, financially successful. And, um, and so that's where the, where it comes, where it becomes a different situation than just an average, um, athletic endeavor, you know, an athletic pursuit. Um, the other reason is that, um, uh, we've incorporated other classes into the school other than just wrestling training. So we, you know, we teach, you know, lighting and sound and camera operation and editing and producing and. You're back. <laughs> We're back. Sorry about that. Um, no but we offer uh, classes on lighting, sound, uh, camera operation, uh, editing, um, you know, live event management, etc. Um, teaching skills not only in the ring but outside the ring for two. Again, two, it's twofold. One, as an in-ring performer, now uh, if you've operated a camera, you've shot uh, the television show, then you know what to look for. As far as the performer, you know what that the camera is looking for and what you need to do to be able to capitalize on that television time that you're on the air and use it as effectively as possible. As an out-of-the-ring performer, you now have skills that give you value well and beyond what you can just do in the ring because it's not a matter of if your career is at some point going to come to an end and as far as being able to perform in the ring, it's a matter of when it's going to come to an end. And if you have additional skills besides just what you can do in the ring, you can still be an asset to a wrestling company in a major operation. Because it's right. It's wrestling, but it's TV production. It's lighting. I mean, it's so much more than just pro wrestling. I mean, it, it's TV, you know, times 10. Oh yeah, uh, producing a live uh, television wrestling show is is a, a completely different world. Um, you're going to need skills, and you're going to learn skills that you can't learn in any other area of broadcasting or entertainment. 
Where do you amass all your knowledge from? Because I always talk to Ben Hameen. He says, like, you're one of the smartest guys in wrestling. I talk to Dr. Tom all the time. He always says, like, what a, you know, a genius for wrestling. Was always a hidden talent all the way back in the day. But, but, you know, like, vast knowledge. Where did you accumulate all your knowledge? Because you're passing it along to the next generation. But older guys like Dr. Tom put me over? Younger guys like Ben put me over? Uh, well, I'm very flattered that anybody's put me over. Um, <laughs> and I'm not saying that I, I didn't know anything because I don't know. I don't think that I necessarily do. I just think I have the. I do a really good job of making people believe that I do, and then I just make up as I go along. So, <laughs> where did you kind of amass all the knowledge? It's just from learning through the years from different guys. Did you have like a mentor like through the business when you were coming along? Uh, you know, I. Uh, uh, you know, I've been doing it for thirty-one years, and I've done. You know, I've had. A lot of I I think it just I've had a lot of experience and I've had a lot of varied experience and um, you know uh, I think one of the, I was very lucky the guy that uh, Jim Lancaster uh, the guy that broke me in the business and and, and at that time um, when you were broke in the business it was more like an apprenticeship because uh, you spent you know the guy was responsible for you and and you know and held accountable uh, on how good you were and. We spent a lot of time traveling together back in the day in the cars. And, you know, that was where you really learned was in a car, you know. Um, and I got to spend a lot of time with a lot of guys that had been in this business doing it for a living. Not doing it on the weekends, but just doing it for a living, nothing else. This was the way they fed their families, the way they, they paid their bills, you know. I, I was uh, spent a lot of time with those types of people. and. Um, learned from them and, and learned from the guy who trained me. And one of the things that we used to used to do a lot, which really seemed to help me um, and still does is that to stay awake, we would, uh, you know, we would book a territory, um, you know, all the way through. Um, if we didn't get it done in the, that car ride, then we, you know, had to, you know, we picked that back up when we were on that trip. Um, but you know, you had, to, you were able to pick whatever talent you wanted from where, whatever territories and, and then you had to justify or explain who they were, why you picked them, uh, who were your heels, who were your baby faces, who were your top heels, your top baby faces, you know, what were you going to work to, what was going to be the blow off match that was going to pop the territory and how, and lay it out, uh, from show to show and week to week, month to month and, you know, and how you were going to build it and where you were going to get your heat and what was going to create that heat that was going to drive people to want to see the final match. Um, and, uh, you know, at the time, I, it was just an exercise that I did with him just to stay awake in the car. And, uh, you know, um, when I was uh, head of developmental for, developmental for WWE for down here in OVW, <clears throat> I kind of just got thrust in the role of, uh, writing the TV show, booking the TV show week to week, and uh, and then also the live events that we did at that time. Which at that time, um, the last year when WWE was associated with WWE, we ran a hundred and eighty-six live events that year alone. Wow! For with an average attendance of about four hundred people, you know, which four hundred is not a lot, but when you you realize that that's an opportunity for young talent to work in front of an audience of that many people on an average basis of 186 times throughout the year. It's pretty significant. And uh, um, so, you know, I got thrust to kind of totally by accident into the position of writing TV and, and I was able to just pretty much do it. I mean, and I think a large part of the reason I was able to do it and have an understanding of it was because of those hours in the car breaking things down and you know um figuring things out so have you been with ovw all the way straight through from the wb time so basically now or was there a break in between there were uh several breaks um when wb left i left because you know danny didn't have any way to you know pay me or anything and i had to go out and work the, you know, go out and wrestle. And uh, and then I came back when I was an executive for TNA, um, 
between Bruce Pritchard and I, we kind of created the developmental program for Impact Wrestling. And, you know, of course, it's Impact was just two hours down the road from that, Nash- you know, in Nashville from Louisville. Um, we, uh, you know, it was natural to create that relationship with Danny again and, and Danny Davis and OVW. And, you know, we um, had the, you know, the Impact uh, developmental go for a couple several years here until budget considerations they had to eliminate it and then i left again and then uh i returned um about three years ago i think um just hanging out and then one thing led to another and um i decided to rib myself and buy a wrestling company so you know (laughs) how's that working out for you he's pretty good Uh, yeah i mean i love it you know i'm not gonna lie i love it and 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 i really enjoy working with everybody all the talent they frustrate me sometimes you know because i sometimes feel like i want them to succeed more than they do themselves um and uh you know uh, but we've gotten to do some really cool things and build some really cool stuff and you know um we don't really get much recognition out in the wrestling world for what we're doing um um but that's not keeping us from doing it. And, and I don't mind that. I like working quietly um, off to the side and, you know, until it gets to a point where they can't ignore us anymore. With that, I feel like OVW, it, you know, it's still relevant and everyone like it's still paying attention to it. Do you think that expanding it even further? I know you were saying Charles instead. Do you think that that's viable to do? Like let's say Ring of Honor might be gone, and do you think that there's like a room for another promotion out there, or is, is there so much out there you don't want to expand too much too fast? Well, I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna expand beyond just the the regional area that we're in. We don't have the infrastructure nor the roster, okay. you know, or the resources to run nationally. I mean, everybody, that's the big, you know, I guess everybody wants to do is is they want to operate on a national level, and even. Listen, even WWE has considered for years eliminating their live events on a national level because they're just, they are too costly. Um, you know, for us, though, um, running regionally within a two and a half hour, you know, geographic distance of Louisville, Kentucky, it's ve- it's very viable. You know, we, we have TV in those areas. We can run live events and and we can, you know, make them profitable, drawing an audience that um, works again to not only support the company, but also gives talent valuable experience in front of that live audience that they would never receive anywhere else. That's the whole main reason, the motivation why I produce, I, you know, made the move to produce our television show live on every Thursday night was because you know, outside of WWE and AEW, there's nowhere else that you can work on a live television show, you know, and it is a remarkable difference between doing a post-produced show and a live television show. They're remarkably different for the talent. And, you know, you want to be as prepared as possible if you get an opportunity, let's say, to go AEW or WWE. Um, and because now that's going to be, that's the last place you want that to be your first experience on a live television platform is when you're walking out there with that life-changing opportunity. Sorry about that. Hey, no problem. Um, so the last place you want to be um with your first experience of being on live television with a life-changing opportunity is, is AEW or WWE where you've never been on live television and now you're thrust out there, you know, and and it's a sink or swim situation. Um, and you're not going to know the skills to really capitalize on and take advantage of that opportunity to its fullest advantage, you know, and, and as a result, you're only going to get that opportunity once. You know, you're not going to get multiple takes at that opportunity. So by operating, you know, training and performing in a platform like what we have here, it allows you to now get that experience, that understanding and that knowledge so that when you go and you get that opportunity on that live, you know, that live television, you're going to be able to exploit that to its fullest. 
So with you lately, I noticed uh, you coming to the Vince Russo brand, and, and you're going to be doing a show with Vince. How did that all come about? I guess Lions, Tigers, Bears, and Head. <laughs> Is that what he titled it? Yes. Um, well, it. Uh, I've Vince. I've always been a you know friend of Vince's. Vince, friend of mine, and uh, you know worked with him in WWE. Worked with him in Impact. You know he's 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 a great guy. He's a controversial guy, but. Um, He's a good guy, and uh, he called. He contacted me and told me that you know Disco Inferno was uh, taking a, a sabbatical from the you know from the show, and you know wanted to see if I would be interested in, in doing so. Um, I probably have a little bit of a different take than most people in regards to uh, you know, how I'm going to view things, and and um, you know I I'm not really one for uh, critiquing uh, other people's operations. Um, uh, when when speaking about it, I will offer my opinion, but I won't make it known that it's an opinion because if I'm not directly involved or I've not been directly contacted by anybody, then it's all it is is just assumption and speculation, and I'm not going to try to present it as if it's actual fact. You know what I mean? You know, I just, you know, it isn't going to be the way that I try to operate um and uh because i can't i can't judge uh people if i don't know the full circumstances of what's going on and what what the behind the scenes considerations are but uh i'll try to give insight and you know maybe a different opinion than what normally most people hear and uh see how it works see if people are entertained by it. Yeah, it should be a good one. Very interested. He said you were his first choice to replace the, the great Disco Inferno there. So that that's a good thing. Well, that's, yeah. I'm uh, very, again, very flattered that, that I was anybody's choice, let alone first choice. When did you first meet him? Would it be the WWF or was it uh, like in the, uh, when he first started with the magazine or was it later on when he was writing the Attitude Era? Uh, he was with the magazine when I met him in, uh, when I first came to WWF. Yeah. I would meet him at TV, see him there, and meet him there. So what's the relationship like been throughout the years? You said you always got along with him very well. Sure, yeah. I don't always agree with Vince. Vince doesn't always agree with me, you know, and uh, and that's fine. Um, you know, he has his way of doing things. He has his strengths and his weaknesses, and, and I'm sure, you know, I, I do as well, and I have my my views and my opinions as far as, you know, way things should be done and um you know uh but this is a very he's a very creative guy um and uh you know um, i think that the record will show that you know vince russo working with vince mcmahon you know um the pair of them uh were able to and you know and a large part of it too were the talent but the creative the creativity of of vince Rousseau, uh, coupled with the direction by vince mcmahon you know led to a great boom in the wrestling business with the attitude era you know you know with with the ideas and the uh, you know the creativity and things that they came up with each week to entertain the fans i mean that's you know that's not an easy job um, you know, having that responsibility, um, keeping that machine running and, and keeping and motivating an audience to continually tune in because we're competing for the most valuable resource on the planet and that's your attention. And, uh, you know, that's not easy to get and it's even harder to keep. And then it, it, it you know, the ultimate objective behind it, uh, getting your attention is to ultimately motivate you to want to leave the comfort, safety, and security home, get in your car, drive to a building, pay to park, which is absurd, and then pay a large amount of money to get into that building to sit in seats you don't want to sit in, around people you don't want to sit around, to pay for food you don't want to eat, to watch some guy do his job. That's ultimately what it is. I know that everybody wants to believe that professional wrestling is only about having the critical acclaim of a wrestling match, but that wrestling match isn't for critical acclaim. That wrestling match is to motivate people to leave their homes and drive to a building and watch the show. And if that part of the equation doesn't happen, you don't stay in business. 
Simple as that. Man, especially as a fan back then, we were willing to do that over and over again during the Attitude Era. I, mean, I remember just like random house shows. They'd be like, oh, Steve Austin on the show. Oop, driving to Philly. Or, hey, you're yeah, yeah. driving East Rutherford. Or, Austin's in the car. Or, you know, whatever. Like, right. what was it like to be a part of that? Because it was so hot. I and mean, the crowds were so good. It was great. It was awesome. It was, you know, it, uh, there's nothing better than when when a territory, and ultimately at the end of the day, WWE is a territory still. You know, WWE is, is no different than what it was Memphis was. It's just WWE runs on a national level and an international level. You know, um, there's nothing better than when a territory's hot and it's making money. Nothing better. Um, you know, it just, it's, it's so awesome. One, because you're making money. I mean, that's, that's always a positive. But two, you know, you, you know, the crowds are hotter. They're into everything you're doing, and you know, and you just—it's—it's it's a great run. You know, it's—it's—it's it's, it's an awesome, awesome run to be a part of. What do you think is missing from today's wrestling? That I know it's a completely different time period, but back then it seemed like Austin's larger than life, Rock's larger than life. Do you think that plays a part into like what we're missing? Those like real guys. You're like, man, these guys are like superheroes. I, um, you know, I, they're a hero to me. I love Austin, you know, Undertaker. Are we missing some of that part of wrestling? Uh, absolutely. Yeah, we are, unquestionably. That, um, the two most important things, and, and regardless of time frame, nothing, nothing, uh, the wrestling business has not changed. It hasn't, I swear to you. The only thing about the wrestling business has changed is that the level of sophistication of the audience that's watching the audiences are much more sophisticated than they now than they were even just 10 years ago you know it's a different world 10 years you know 10 years hence you know it would be a different world than what it is today and that audience will be even more sophisticated um, but one thing that doesn't change is the, of what you're selling intrinsically about wrestling i don't care how you go about doing it but at the end of the day, the only thing that quote unquote is fake, that's not real, is that we know who's going to win. And then the only thing you, you know, let's be honest, the only thing you are really buying a ticket that really drives your interest in wrestling is who the performer is as a person, as a character, as a persona. And why are they doing it? Why are they out in that ring? Well, they're out in that ring to try to win and not lose. The, the, you know, the backstage things and the storylines and all that, that just adds gravity or consequence to that win or loss. That's all it does. That's never changed. That was, that was the way it was in 1901. It's the way it was in 1961. It's the way it is in 2021. That never changes. Does the wrestling business evolve, grow, develop? Yes. But what you're selling doesn't. I mean, if you... I don't know if you watch boxing or if you watch MMA, but if you do, let's be honest, there's only two reasons you ever watch either one of those sports. It's because of who's fighting and why. Well, guess what? Wrestling's exactly the same. It doesn't change. Um, the reason the Attitude Era was so ultra successful was because every guy on the show was somebody you could describe to your friends and family in a sentence. Let's, let's be honest. You could say... That you could describe Steve Austin as a beer drinking, ass kicking redneck that flips off his boss and fights authority. Boom, we know who he is. Undertaker, that guy, gold dust, sexually weird, you know, and you know, um, sexually ambiguous. We 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 know these people. That's why we relate to them, and we relate to why they're doing it. Yeah, it, it, baseball. I've used this analogy a number of times on other interviews. Baseball, football, and basketball have enormous audiences in the United States. The reason they do is because everybody's played them in the United States. That's why hockey has an audience in Canada that it does in the United States. That's why soccer is bigger all over the rest of the world than it is here in the United States. That's why soccer is becoming bigger here. It's because we have more generations of children that are playing the top three, and everybody's always surprised when I list this off. The top three in the world, the rest of the world, not just the United States, but in the rest of the world, the top three televised sporting events are as follows. Number three is the World Cup of Rugby. Rugby. Number two is the World Cup of Cricket. 
number one is soccer, the World Cup of Soccer. Notice, I did not mention the World Series. I did not mention the Super Bowl because they are not even close to the numbers that those other three sporting events draw. And the reason that they draw that is because people play those in those other countries. The whole point of this is, just like, you know, golf, more old white people, white guys watch golf than anybody else. Why? More old white guys play golf than anybody else. If you've never been inside a ring, you don't know what or how to relate to what's happening physically. All you can relate to is the consequence of what's taking place, which is that somebody can win and somebody lose. And unfortunately, these days, the talent in all organizations are focusing on selling you what they do. No longer are they selling who they are and why they're doing it. During the match, not, I'm not talking about vignettes and promos. And, you know, those are all well and good. But the problem with those are that if you sell me that you're A, B, C, D, E on a promo, backstage in a vignette you you tell me effectively that you're this character then the bell rings and you don't wrestle like that guy well now we're done because you sold me a product i bought the product i cared about the product and now i get another product i don't get the thing that i bought well now i'm not gonna i'm not gonna buy, pay to see it anymore you know simple as that that's so true like about the attitude or you can explain the guy in a sentence nowadays it is harder to explain some guys people like well what is this guy or not a guy in, in particular but a lot of the guys are like oh yeah how would you describe him to somebody you know that's like a casual fan like hey can you turn to your friend? friends and family can you turn to your friends and family and go hey there's this guy and he's a b c d all all of those guys the majority of those guys of the attitude era back then you could Let's be honest. You could. You know, Vince McMahon was the evil boss. Steve Austin was the regular Joe that stood up to him. You know, Rock was the you know was the movie star guy even before he was a movie star. You know, Undertaker was that guy. You know, you can you know until I got that definable persona, that definable personality that clicked with an audience. You know, um, I was, you know, I was I was the best kept secret in wrestling and. You know, um, and then I became the guy that was crazy and talked to a head, you know, and, but you knew who I was and you knew what I was about. And you could, in, in one sentence, you could turn to your friends and go, there's a crazy guy. I never know what he's going to do. He talks to a head it like it's a real person. I mean, you got to watch. Sorry, John. <laughs> hey, no problem at all. But you um, you were saying like, it's just about the characters in general. It's crazy how you can describe them. Indeed. The, you know, that's, and that is essential if you really want to be a star in professional wrestling is that you've got to develop and create that not you know not a character but a persona that's who you really are your um real personality but just that aspect turned way up so that an audience will believe in you because that's the key so not to make people believe in what you're physically doing um because you're never going to be able to it's the key is to make them believe in who you are and why you're doing it. And then they'll believe in anything you do physically or otherwise. I mean, look at, you know, people genuinely say what you want, but people genuinely believe that I was clinically insane. And, um, you know, uh, they believe that I knocked somebody out with a plastic head and uh, I can't, it's not physically possible. I can't even knock a toddler out. I've tried. Um, the kids usually just come down and start crying and then their parents start saying stuff about calling the police and other stuff. And it's like, Hey, your kid won't sell and put me over. So, you know, he's the one that's the problem. Um, you know, so if you're going to call the cops, you know, call the wrestling cops, because this guy's not, he's not selling the gimmick at all, but he's right. down there on the floor crying. So, you know, Tommy Rich got color for it. You know, he bled. This kid won't put me over at all. But I can make people believe still to this day that I can knock somebody out with it, you know, because they believed in who I was and why I was doing it. Definitely. Where did that come from? Like, is that just the thought process of creating this awesome gimmick? Like, you're the best kept secret 
everyone knows you're a great worker, but how could you create that character? So how do you create the head and the character and like that schizophrenic nature of it? Just taking what I knew an audience already knew about me. I knew that if you watched WWE that you saw me as Lee Cassie, and if anybody was that happy-go-lucky, they had to have some kind of mental illness. And I knew that there were a lot of ECW fans that knew me well before, and if they knew I had been pursuing anything as long as I had been pursuing it and was not, as far as I was concerned at that time, not achieving some kind of success, that that frustration would eventually play out and I'd have a nervous breakdown. And um, so I tried different things that, that would help to demonstrate that I'd done just exactly that, that I'd have that the frustration had finally gotten to me and I'd snapped and I had a nervous breakdown. Where'd you get the idea from? Uh, you know, I had a book on abnormal psychology um, and um, trying different things and saw a woman in there was had a case study about uh, parents' schizophrenia with a transference disorder and uh, um, where she transferred the what she thought, you know, the voices that she heard from a lamp or, uh, you know, a couch or whatever. She thought they were crazy about her. So that's how I always treated the head was that they were crazy, not me. So with, obviously, I mean, the, the gimmick is awesome. So the head itself, where do you get the, like, the head from, like the actual physical head? Like you just took it off a mannequin? Or, like, where did, like, that actual part come in to play? Initially, I found a styrofoam head because in the uh, old ECW arena, um, there was um, a part of it that was used to make a Lumber Day parade floats in Philadelphia and um, they had a styrofoam head back there and I picked it up and I was I started I thought well I'm just going to carry this ring and I'm going to talk to it and treat it as if it's real and uh, alive and uh, um, I started getting I knew I had to get one with a face and I had uh, got these ones that have a thin plastic face on them they get broken and um, Mikey Whipwreck and uh, Spike Dudley um, found in a barrel uh, in New Britain, Connecticut, the fans used to bring objects for New Jack to use as weapons in his match. And they went through the barrel one night in New Britain, Connecticut, and they found, uh, you know, found the head and and uh, Budition's uh, head, and uh, came running up to me and were like, "Here you go, Al. Um, you know, I know you got you would need something like this." And I was like, "That's perfect. Thank you." And I, I it's they've been with me ever since. So. Were you ever shocked at like how over it got? I mean, it was just like, man, the credit sure. ECW crowd. I mean, they really took to it. Yeah, I really, really was surprised. You know, um, I was thrilled. You know what I mean? Um, and uh, and I was really surprised that you know um, it did it got because you, know, you don't you don't know what's going to work or what's not going to work. You just do, and. Uh, um, and it did. And the, I think the reason it did was because, like, at the time I was wrongfully, I had a bad attitude and I had a lot of personal frustration about my career and was pointing the finger at everybody else instead of pointing where it belonged, which is at myself, and taking responsibility for my successes and my failures 100% on my own. And, uh, um, and that came through whenever I would speak to the head that frustration came through and so it was real and so that made who i was real and they believed in me and so as a result that's why i got over what worked and even in ecw you know the, the prodigy song breathe it just everything was perfect the, the, you know the, the way just the music went and then they handed out the styrofoam head and sometimes the lights they mess with the lights it was just in, in the camera work, too. I mean, everything was perfect, frantic craziness, but it fit the character perfectly. Yeah, it did. It was a perfect storm. It worked really, really, really well, you know. I was very, very fortunate that it, 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 it ended up working the way it did. And I know you had a, a very good program with Shane Douglas, the franchise on there, too. I feel like uh, he has said that he was a little injured in one of the matches. You kind of carried him, but... He's a buddy of mine, so I'm allowed to. I'm allowed to say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Shane, Shane's awesome, and I think Shane's very underrated. I don't think he gets the credit that you know he deserved. Um, 
you know, and, and Shane's a throwback too. Shane broke in around the same time I did back in 82 and, you know, was in the different territories coming up and, you know, so he, he understands things on a different level than, you know, a lot of, a lot of people realize. And Shane's training buddy with Dominic Danucci was your buddy Mick Foley. What what's up with him and always the digs at you and like the little stories? And <laughs> Why does Foley always do this? That I don't know. Um, I think you know he, he. Sometimes I wonder because it borders on obsession and uh, to the point to where it's almost like a sexual proclivity to it, and it worries me. But. Um, I don't mind. I mean, you know, I think it's awesome that, you know, he continues to keep mentioning me, keeps my li- my name alive. You know what I mean? He keeps bringing attention to me and putting me over. So why not? Uh, feel free. I did a show with him last week. I was just like a producer on it, but um, he was on the show, but fans kept asking him questions like about you or say a joke about you, but he wasn't taking the bait. I was shocked. I was like, whoa, did he turn a new leaf here? He was <laughs> I don't he know, yeah. You. It's a, it's a, you know, and to Barry, you guys need to understand. You all use well, terms you don't know what right, they are. Right. To bury someone, yeah. yeah about to bury someone is not to say something negative, and everybody thinks it is. When you are speaking about somebody, whether you're speaking positively or negatively, you're not burying them. You're putting that person over because you're paying attention to them. And if you want to bury somebody, the real term. Is just what it says. You, when somebody dies, you put them in the earth, you bury them, and pretty soon you don't talk about them ever again, and they're forgotten. That's burying somebody, you know. And um, yeah, he's not uh, there's he a jokes big about difference. You. Jokes around about you. He jokes about me and, and and makes remarks about me, and he's ultimately putting me over. So I don't mind. I mean, let him keep doing it. I mean, he's done it for years. He'll never stop. So. <laughs> What was like the genesis of that though? Was there like a like a starting point where he was like, oh, "Yeah, gonna... it started when we would we would we get bored in the car and we do what we called like a verbal boxing match, and then we we would uh, we'd um, throw verbal jabs back and forth, and then we'd oh my god, like if you hit him, you hit each other with the good ones. Oh, that's a standing eight. Oh my god, I knocked you out on that one. You know what I mean? You didn't even have to get your hands up on that one. And we would joke back and forth. And the rule was we were going to keep it in the car. But then Mick started doing it in the locker room and then started doing it in front of the boys. They got him a good reaction. So he kept doing it. And then, um, you know, then he started doing it on TV. And then in the infancy of the Internet, he was doing it there. And then he just kept doing it, you know, wrote his book and just kept doing it there. And, you know, been doing it ever since. So. So basically started out like as a little bit of an inside joke and then he just uh, just as a little com- competition between the two of us and and we agreed you know we're like we'll just keep it in the car we're not going to give you know we, this is such a competitive business we're not going to give you know the people in the locker room uh an upper hand you know to bury you know throw us under the bus so to speak so you know um so we would it was agreed we wouldn't do it but then he took it outside of the car and started doing it in the locker room and everywhere else and um and i kept up and uh was doing very well but i just got to a point where um sometimes mick could dish it out he couldn't really take it so he'd get upset so i told him i said well i'm i'm not gonna play anymore i'm just not gonna not gonna not gonna do it anymore and uh, i stopped and he just keep he kept going so because even when he does some of his live shows, I know I saw one on WWE Network, he's like sneezing a little Al Snow joke. I was like, man, he's still going. I can't believe that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's still still at it. Yeah, still throws him in there. What is it like um, traveling with him? But he just, to me, it seems like he's like a jovial guy, but you, you always see, you know, obviously the character, Mankind and Cactus Jack. Like, so is there like a crazy side to him, or is he the Santa Claus that he. <laughs> Oh, it, it, um, you know, traveling, we traveled together for a long time, you know, but it, it, it eventually it just is, it's human nature. Eventually you start to get on each other's nerves. I mean, because when you're, you know, little things that, you know, that didn't bother you before really start to bother you as you guys are traveling together. Cause you're in the car all the time. You're at the building all the time. You're eating together. You're sleeping in the same hotel. I mean, you know, and eventually just that. Sorry about that. Another phone call. 
um, just the littlest things start to become a slight annoyance, and that's that's pretty natural. A lot of the guys will travel with each other for a certain period of time, then they'll jump cars and they'll go travel with somebody else, and then they'll jump cars and they'll go travel with somebody else, and you know, and then they'll eventually make their way back to the original guy, and you know, that's that's pretty normal. With him, obviously, you guys tag team champions as well. Was it great for you? Like, his, you know, he's a former WWE champion. I mean, was it great to be aligned with him on TV and, you know, being tag champs and working on the card with him? I, you know, Mick and I, um, for some whatever reason, have a chemistry that works on TV. Uh, we have an on air chemistry. And, you know, and it's not something we have to manufacture or, uh, create or it just happens, you know, and we can just make it, um, you know, kind of in when those situations occur, you know, it's, it's fun and it's easy to, you know, uh, exploit it and take advantage of it and have a good time. And, um, and that's the way it always was with us, you know, for whatever reason, like Martin and Lewis or, you know, other, you know, Abbott and Costello or, you know, other couples or duos on TV, well, you know, we just we just had that chemistry where we could play off each other pretty easily, um, you know, uh, while performing. So uh, they made it very, very enjoyable and made it a lot of fun. Do winning the championships mean as much to, like, the wrestlers as it does to the fans? Because I know some of the wrestlers, you know, I've heard this expression, they use all the titles of prop. But to us, it's like a, a resume, or it's, it's a, to the fan, to me anyway, it's like, okay, that's important, because now I could say, oh, he's a former tag team champion. It's like a stamp you're leaving behind the business. Oh, in the history books, you were European champion. Does the belts mean as much to you, like, as the wrestler, as it does to the fans? Well, in... in uh, when you're in these, uh, an actual operational uh, platform like WWE, they do. And the reason they do is because they're giving the, that belt, that championship, that title, they're giving it to you for a reason. They're, they're hoping that putting that title on you can draw, can draw ratings, can draw interest, can draw people at the house shows to want to see you defend it, you know. So yeah, it means it does have some meaning because it means they trust you. They think that they can do business with you. I just always think back to the Attitude Era, of course, head, and you're doing that great gimmick. But I always think about the big boss man feud and, and that whole thing with Pepper and everything else. Is that one of those things you look back and you just laugh like, man, that was some crazy times. With, you know, obviously Russo's writing it too, but it's like a crazy angle to think of like on paper you're like oh it might not work but as a fan you're watching like this is hilarious this is like great tv we're like glued to it because it's so interesting you wouldn't expect it to happen but it's like wow this guy's obsessed with his dog big boss man is gonna kill the dog and so every time it's so weird but interesting and, and cool at the same time and the reason why is because everyone can relate everyone everyone either owns a dog or knows somebody who owns a dog or you know, uh, or had a dog when they were a kid. Everyone has had that situation. So, you know, it's, it's very relatable and very, you know, uh, easy to connect and, and feel emotions when, you know, the guy, the big bad guy kidnaps the dog. And, you know, it's easy to, easy to play right into. What do you think about Boss Man or we're, we're working with Boss Man back then? Oh, he was wonderful. He was awesome. He was such a great guy. Just a terrific guy. And I really enjoyed the opportunity to get to work with him. What did you think about just that angle in general? Did you think, like, oh, this is, this is crazy or it's getting crazy? That kennel from hell. Like, what did you kind of think about just the, the angle, just in an overview of it? I've said this before, and I'll say it again. I didn't mind the angle. I didn't mind. In the final match, it just from the moment that Vince Russo approached me, and then quite literally, and I, I, I swear on my kids, every single week that I showed up at TV, the conversation was exactly the same. Um, because when he came to me and told me the idea, I said, well, you know, you need highly trained animals that operate on verbal commands, and they need to be all from the same training center, you know. Um, because in my mind, I'm envisioning you know, the trainers standing on all four sides outside the cage, 
directing these animals inside verbally through verbal commands because that was the only way you could create the you know that shark tank kind of a feel because we had the the trainers in there inside the the uh secondary cage um then there's that loss of you lose the the jeopardy you lose the you know that fear of that these rabid dogs are going to attack at any minute and uh i said that from day one all the way through um you know hey we're gonna have trained animals we're gonna have trained animals even with pepper the chihuahua i wanted a trained animal and they ended up going to a veterinarian and getting the list of owners that had uh chihuahuas and you know that was the extent of it and uh arriving in charlotte that day there were like 11 dogs with 11 people with you know that were 11 different owners and one dog had some obedience training so you know there was nothing we could do you know it was it was just but you you know you it's my responsibility to take shit and make shoe polish and you know, obviously we didn't, you know, Ray and I didn't do it. I mean, we, we tried to make the best of a bad situation, but the entire crux of the match was built around the animals and the animals weren't, you know, you couldn't feature them or, or work with them in any manner because of the fact that, you know, they were, they weren't trained and, um, they were urinating, defecating and fornicating where we couldn't even show them on TV. So, you know, and everyone in entertainment, everyone in entertainment knows you don't work with children or animals. They'll always, they'll always upstage you. Yeah, that's for sure. I feel like that's one of those ideas that was great on paper, but the execution, like maybe Russo had a great idea, but the execution of it, not so much. Yeah, Didn't if they just gotten trained, they needed very highly trained animals that operated on verbal commands. That's what they needed, and they didn't get that. They went to a veterinarian clinic the morning of the show and got a list of owners that had Rottweilers, and that was it. Yeah. So, Could be one of the things that you and Russo talk about. <laughs> on, uh, it could on be, show, yeah. Right? yeah, sure. So I also wanted to bring up uh, Steve Black, and just because I love that team with the uh, head cheese. I just thought that was such a funny pairing as well with you guys. It just... It's like so odd to, to kind of put you guys together, but then it worked because I thought you guys had great chemistry together. We did. We had great chemistry. And I really, and you know, Steve's a wonderful person and and a, you know, a great human being, and um, you know, and it worked. I mean, we we were we were some of the highest rated segments on SmackDown during that time because of you know people really tuning in and wanting to watch you know the two of us together and. We had so much fun doing the vignettes and, you know, it being an oddball pairing that, you know, and Steve being such a great straight man, um, you know, it worked, it worked so well and uh, people really enjoyed it. So, you know, I was really, I was really happy to be a part of it. It was cool too for you because it's a little bit of a, of a switch from you and Foley. You know, it's like a different range. It's like, okay, he's definitely the straight man. But you and Foley can almost flip it, and Foley could be like the crazy guy. So it, it's kind of cool for you to like show a little bit of range there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and, and the thing that I want to point out is that everybody's like, you know, they they think that I was like a comedy wrestler or something, which I wasn't. I wasn't a comedy wrestler. What I did was entertaining. It was at times it was funny. But I was never done as comedy. It was done because I was supposed to be insane. And so the ridiculousness of some of the stuff that they had me do made total sense for me because I was, you know, completely out of my mind and uh, I could get away with it. Oh, yeah, just go back and watch anything. WWF, ECW, Smoky Mountain, hell of a worker. One of the best, like Dr. Tom always says, and everyone always says, like, man, Al Snow, best uh, kept secret for a long time. Until you know the head character really kind of brought him to the forefront, but always were a plus the worker in the ring for sure. Well, thank you. So with you, I always felt like okay, the head thing is is very synonymous. Like with you in your career, is that just it's everything people bring up is head and like the Walmart situation? People always say like, oh, I always remember you with head, and then bring up like, oh, your toys got banned from Walmart and like stuff like that. Sure, yeah. Or uh, when I had the European title, that gets brought up quite a bit, too. Um, and, uh, and tough enough. 
tough enough. Um, and the reason why that gets brought up so much and so prevalent is it's very flattering that they remember it is simply because that, you know, I had the greatest amount of exposure at that time. You know, um, I was with WWE. It's the biggest platform in the world. You're going to reach the biggest audience. Outside of that, the only thing that was bigger was MTV, you know, and, and uh, with Tough Enough. And I reached even bigger audience and uh, worldwide by being a part of that. So, you know, I'm very, very grateful and very, uh, very appreciative of my time that I had with both WWE and then, you know, and wrestling and, and commentating and, um, and being a part of Tough Enough and all of that. Cause that's, you know, it's allowed me to continue to have a career and, and do the things that I've done for, for years, not just here in the United States, but all over the world. You know, um, I still have a, you know, a marketable name uh, all over the world because of that time that I spent with WWE. Was Tough Enough always going to be like you a part of it, or did you kind of want to be like, what, like how did that work out where you got onto Tough Enough? Was that them wanting you to be always be a part of it, or did you say, like, oh, I would fix this perfectly? Uh, Kevin Dunn approached me, asked me if I would be interested in being a part of it, and then um, said that, you know, Big, um, the you know that was the executive producer for WWE would you know talk to me, and that was John Gaborik, and um, spoke to John, and you know, and um, uh, it was never I don't think it was intended. I think it was more intended to be a vehicle for Taz, um, but uh, I got there and they want they liked me and MTV liked me and WWE liked what I was doing and you know I, I ended up getting to be a part of it for season one, two, and three, you know, and it was, you know, and even four when they had it in a segment on SmackDown. And uh, it was, you know, it was one of the greatest things I've done in my career. I really enjoyed it. Did that kind of launch you into wanting to do the training and, and kind of eventually be in that role? Is that what kind of launched you into that? No, I'd, I had had a training school prior to, um, being, you know, having the opportunity with WWE. So I had been doing that sort of thing for quite some time and was very successful with the training school and had students from all over the world that attended. And, uh, you know, um, I uh, promoted shows similar, very similar in a way to kind of what I do in OVW. I promoted shows, you know, TV was not what it is here, obviously. And, you know, platform-wise, it was just a local access channel. But you know, it gave the guys experience and, and um, you know, we ran shows in the building that we trained in and, you know, and uh, um, it, was, it was a nice little operation and uh, it kept me, kept me, uh, you know, going between the bookings and the wrestling and that um, I was able to keep making a living. As we head for the wind down, head towards the finish, any regrets? I love asking. Like any regrets in the business? Anything you wish would have been done differently or happened differently for you? Uh, no, I don't have any regrets. I wish, you know, well, I the only thing I wish I knew then what I know now. You know, um, uh, the biggest mistake that I had was I didn't take full advantage of the opportunities that were presented to me. And I was presented an enormous amount of opportunities, but I was too busy trying to be a great wrestler, a great performer, and not a great worker and a great attraction. And if I had, you know, chosen differently, had different goals, and and at the time, my career would have been, which my career was, I was, you know, I feel like I did very well. I'm very, I'm very happy and very satisfied with what I did, but um, financially, I would have done immensely more, you know, better. I would have done better and I would have left a different mark on the business, even though I do feel that I've, I've left a, uh, a substantial impression on the wrestling business. Um, I think I could have left even a bigger one if I had just focused on the right things and truly capitalized on those opportunities, multiple opportunities that came my way back then. What's like the best piece of advice you give to like young, young students or your OVW guys? What's like something that you give to them that they, they could definitely take and kind of move forward with their career with? Um, the, the, the things that I tell them is the one ultimately be honest with yourself. 
Um, you know, we lie to everybody every day. So just don't lie to yourself. Just be as blatantly honest as you can. And, um, you know, um, because this life, if you, you're wanting, you can, quite honestly, you can do absolutely anything you want to do. Um, that's truth. People like to not believe it because they all want to be a victim and they all want to live in a state of misery because misery loves company. Um, that's the one truest mantra out there. That's the problem with social media is that there's so many miserable people. They want to go and make sure everybody else is miserable too. Um, the, but you can do whatever you want to do. The, the thing comes down though, are you willing to do things that others don't do to live a life that others don't live? And if you're not, that's okay. You know, um, it's not for you, but if it's what you really want to do, you truly have a passion, a true passion to do it, then you'll find a way. If it's not, you'll find an excuse. And, you know, um, you know you're going to demonstrate that by not what you say, but what you do. So I'm going to judge you based on how much you've invested time, money, and effort into yourself that warrants you thinking that I want to invest my time, money, and effort into you as either both a promoter or an audience member, you know, um, you know, you've got to be willing to do those things and make those investments and work as hard as possible to achieve your goal, achieve what you want to achieve, or just don't bother doing it. Go find what you really are passionate about doing because the, the real key to success in life and in wrestling, but especially in wrestling is, is a passion. It's nothing else. I've seen guys that have had every tool you can imagine. They've had the size, the height, the looks, the charisma, the athletic ability, and they amount to nothing or they quit, you know? And I've seen guys that when you first look at them, you're like, that guy, I don't know how we're going to draw money with that, you know? And sure enough, they do. And the reason they do is because they're passionate about what they do. And that's what's always going to separate the good from the bad. You know, that's going to allow the cream to rise to the top is, is passion. Because you can have all the talent in the world, but if you're not willing to work, you're going to, get, you're going to have somebody that has less talent is going to work you is going to be more successful than you, regardless of how much talent you have. So I tell them all the time. I tell my tell my guys all the time, you know, don't lie to yourself. Be honest and invest in yourself and and be willing to do the things that others don't do to live a life that others don't live. And if you're not, then don't pull yourself. What would you say is like your legacy in the business? I mean, owner, producer, great wrestler, great character. I mean, get all stuff like well, if somebody said like, hey, you know, the stamp that Al Snow left behind her what's the legacy of his career? What would you like? How would you describe that? Uh, it's probably going to be all of my kids, all of the people that I've broke into the business and have trained, you know, and have started careers and they've gone and been very successful. And, you know, um, I'm quite prolific when it comes to um, the number of people that I've broken into the business and trained and influenced and shaped and molded to some degree or another, you know, from Cody Rhodes to Kenny King to Josh Matthews to D'Lo Brown to Dan Severin to Blue Meanie, you know, the list goes on and on. Truth Martini, you know, um, well, I've got many, many, many kids in the business and you know i've been instrumental in helping them in some way or another to some degree and some that don't want to admit it so <laughs> they still still uh are my still are my kids so what's next for you what do you got coming up next uh just continuing to you know work and build obw as much as possible um and um you know i have a comic book out now they can go to Broken Icon Comics and check it out. BrokenIconComics.com. They can check it out. Um, and um, you know, I, uh, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm just having fun, enjoying life, and, and doing OVW, and and occasionally doing the, the occasional independent appearances and things out and about. And uh, you know, 
and just being grateful. I just I'm so grateful that I I've gotten to do what I love to do for as long as I've gotten to do it. So in regards to your your question about regrets, I don't have any. You know, I've been able to do what I love to do for 39 years. I mean, how can you regret that? Very true. So where can everybody find you and OVW and all the social media and even Collar and Elbow? Sure. Uh, they can go to CollarandElbowBrand.com. They can use the code SNOWMAN and they can get 10% off. And even if we have a sale, they can get an additional 10% off of whatever the sale is using that code. Um, you can follow me at the Real Al Snow on Twitter, Facebook, uh, Instagram, even uh, TikTok. I'm kind of getting started on that. And I'm going to start to do a series of videos of instructional videos about wrestling and psychology and how, what the terms actually are and what they really mean and things like that. And um, you can, on Amazon.com, I wrote a book about my career. It's called Self-Help. Uh, life lessons from the bizarre career of Al Snow, and um, and uh, again, my comic is out, and it's at BrokenIconComics.com. You can check it out. I'll uh, be uh, out and about making appearances. Uh, OVW, if you're interested, uh, go to OVWrestling.com. You can check out the school at ASWA.live. Um, for more information, we're on Fight TV every Thursday night, live from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And then we're on about five, I think it is, five different national networks, the YTA, RCN, Lily Network. Uh, we're on the Action Channel, and we're on uh, Game Plus. Uh, so you can find us there. We're on Sky Sports in the UK. We're on Sports International, which is a European sports channel. And with all of that combined, we reach about 700 million homes worldwide internationally. Uh, we're also on YouTube at OVW Wrestling TV. Um, please check us out and, uh, you know, leave some feedback. Um, you know, um, reach out to me on Twitter, uh, Facebook, Instagram. I just put up silly jokes all the time um, because I just try to make people laugh. There's too much negativity out there. So let's figure some nonsense is well in order. Those are usually pretty damn funny. Those are good. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> Al, uh, good stuff. Thank you so much. Appreciate all the time. Well, thank you very much, John. I appreciate you uh, giving me the time and uh, look forward to doing it again sometime in the future. This has been a John Paz Power Trip production in conjunction with the Two Man Power Trip of Wrestling. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Two Man Power Trip. You can check us out on Facebook. You can subscribe on YouTube. You can go to patreon.com slash tmptempire to become a patron. And also check out the website tmptempire.com and buy a shirt at prowrestlingtees.com. Two Man Power Trip, where the power lies brother.